0: Welcome
2: to the Real Change series on the Meta Hour with Sharon Salzberg. Inspired by Sharon's newest book, Real Change, this series features conversations with activists, artists, and teachers, all discussing the intersection of meditation and social action. To learn more, visit realchangebook.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm speaking today with Anu Gupta for the Real Change podcast series. Anu is a scientist, educator, lawyer, and the founder of Be More with Anu. He has logged over 10,000 hours of meditation and developed Be More with Anu's science-backed, compassion-based approach. After conducting decade-long research on the causes of and solutions to racial and gender inequality, Having trained over 16,000 people, Anu has spoken about his work on the TED stage, South by Southwest, and the 10% Happier podcast. He's a graduate of the Mindful Yoga and Meditation Teacher Training Program at Spirit Rock, and sits on the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies board. Barry Center for Buddhist Studies right down the road from where I am now. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Anu.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Sharon.
2: This recording is part of a larger series of conversations on the Meta Hour centered around the themes of my book, Real Change, Mindfulness to Heal Ourselves in the World. And uh, it reminds me, Anna, that you were a really important part of an earlier book of mine, a Real Happiness at Work, which I especially wanted to write, um, you know, not just for people in finance, which is what the impression of the title, I think, sometimes conveys, but people really working on the front lines of suffering. And uh, and you wrote about your experience as a, an attorney and and everything you kind of faced and the internal process of, of learning how
1: to deal with it. Yeah, I mean, it was a really interesting time. And I think um, actually going on retreat with you back then, this was probably eight or nine years ago, was... One of the formative periods of my own practice to really beginning to see how the collective suffering of, you know, racial bias or gender bias of all sorts of biases that exist and inequalities that exist in our society were really playing out inside my own body and my own mind. And yeah, I was I was really grateful that you were able to share some of that with the world in your book.
2: And it's it's quite a compelling story that you actually came, I think, to more or less specialize in really working with bias. And I think all the time about the relationship of mindfulness practice and implicit bias or unconscious bias because of the very role of mindfulness in making the unconscious conscious.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And it's so interesting because that really has been my journey. So I think the work that I'm doing right now was actually a product of uh, my own personal growth and how I was you know, gifted with the practices of mindfulness and of various other dharma practices to really apply to how I suffered personally with these notions of bias. And at the end of the day, these were just stories that I had in my mind, you know, that I had believed about myself, about other people, And this is what we call social conditioning, you know, more broadly speaking. So that's, and mindfulness, you know, and of course I've learned this from you and so many other teachers is just the practice of noticing, becoming aware of whatever arises and oftentimes without judgment. But I also like to bring judgment into mindfulness (laughs) (laughs) because, you know, my mind especially is very judgmental. You know, I was... Uh, trained as an academic, as a lawyer, so we are trained to be critical. And what bringing mindfulness to that critical mind was basically the beginning of my own journey to understanding how bias played out in myself. And once I could see that, I could begin to see its implications more broadly, particularly in workplaces and particularly in the way so many of our institutions and systems are designed um, and then with everything that's happening right now in our country mm-hmm. like the pandemic and it's you know egregiously disproportionate impact on um, black communities native american communities immigrant communities and then of course the protests that are happening yeah. in light of the recent murders so for, for me a lot of this work really goes back to our hearts You know, so it's beautiful that we're in the meta hour. Mm -hmm. It's really, I think, breaking bias overall for me is a hard practice.
2: Well, it's so uh, powerful, I think, and interesting. Well, there's so much in what you just said, so I'll respond kind of part by part. Um, It's very hard, I think, for people to hear... Something like mindfulness means being aware without judging and, and not think, well, that leaves you not caring in a way, you know, like, oh, so I feel this, I feel that. What's the difference? Mm-hmm. But there is a difference, especially when we bring those things into action. Yeah. Um, but the kind of corrosive edge of self hatred, you know, like, I shouldn't feel this and this is so terrible and this is all that I am and this is all I'll feel, doesn't seem to be onward leading, you know? Sure. You know, so sometimes I think it's a question of really understanding what we want. You know, do we want behavior change? We want to manifest differently in the world. We want to not feel so lonely, you know, and and then see what can accomplish that. And so there's some fine place of being aware without freaking out about what we're seeing. Right. And then being able to resolve, you know what, I've been down that path. that left me all alone. I don't want to do that anymore.
1: You know, it's really interesting what you said. I think for me, you know, as I was, so I was always inclined towards working in human rights and economic development. So basically, I grew up in New York City to give everybody a little bit of context of who I am and went to public schools in New York and went to college here. And originally, I went to college to become a doctor in the footsteps of my parents and the older sister. Uh, But I just love people and I love cultures. So quickly I found myself more attracted to working abroad and it was after college I lived in South Korea for a year and that's where I really became introduced to Buddhism and the dharma because I was teaching at a Buddhist school at a middle school in rural South Korea so there I was kind of acquainted with the Zen tradition and while I was there I started working in Myanmar um so I started a nonprofit called Opening Possibilities Asia and we went there and Because I was a teacher, we led a lot of teacher training programs. So this was the year 2006, right? So at that time, Myanmar was probably the second most oppressive country in the world. It probably is one of the most oppressive countries still. And I was working in monastic schools. So basically, these were schools that were set up by Buddhist monks um, out of the generosity of their hearts because of just the brutality of the regime. And what they were doing was they were educating some of the poorest children um, in the country. And one of their tenets was anybody is welcome. It doesn't matter what their ethnic background is. It doesn't matter what their gender identity is. All kids were welcome. So this was a really unique situation. This was in Mandalay, a school called Pangdawu. And where we had over 25 different ethnic groups represented, groups that were so used to a constant state of war, because of the historic um, ways you know, these divisions have been planted in that country. So, I think for me, that's where my journey about meta began and really thinking about where do these biases come from? Why do we hate? Where are a of these separations really stemming from? And that led me to wanting to do more international development work. So, I went off to Cambridge um, after my time in Korea to study human development. And it was really there that my eyes were opened for the first time around this concept of bias, you know, because I grew up as an immigrant in New York and with brown skin and given what I look like, I've had a lot of like, I had a lot of experiences of feeling otherness, Mm -hmm. but I had repressed those feelings. So I just didn't acknowledge that that ever happened. And when I was at Cambridge, The cool thing was, because it was such an academically stimulating environment, I was studying um, basically education for all, particularly in South Asia. And the way it works in India is that anybody of means sends their kids to private schools and people that don't have money have to go to government schools, which is, I guess, comparable to our public schools in the U.S., but they're very, very under-resourced. And that's where the majority of Indian children and Salvation kids go to school. And a lot of them are of lower caste and basically kind of left behind. And it was interesting because as I was researching, where did these policies come from? I was literally going through public records of the British anthropological surveys of India from the 1860s and 70s and eight, uh, in the 1880s. And they were literally... You know, labeling entire groups of people um, through these racial classification systems and prescribing to them a whole host of, you know, moral, intellectual, aesthetic value. So they were just assigning these values to them. And that's where this whole idea of race really kind of was like, oh, my gosh, this thing is just made up. It's a bunch of guys that literally sat around a table who probably felt really bad about themselves and projected onto other people, whole groups of people, you know, just all the negative attributes of our human existence. And those things have now become very concrete. So that's, and basically, that's what led me to really wanting to investigate more and more deeply around how did these constructs come about? Why is it that You know, we have all sorts of stereotypes associated with being Black or being Chinese or being Russian. Where do these ideas come from? At the end of the day, we're all human beings, right? But, and more importantly, similar things. Where do these ideas around being a woman and what a woman can or cannot do? Where do these ideas come from? So that kind of very intellectual curiosity led me into this work. Yet, I was pursuing this work from my head. A lot of it was in my head. Um, so, again, I was doing this because I was wounded inside. You know, I'd been called a terrorist. I'd been called an other. I'd been called punky. I'd been called... I mean, I can't remember how many times I've been told to go back to my country. <laughs> you know, uh, being in America. New York! <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> New York City. I'm like, okay. Um, but it's funny because... <laughs> Um, all those times when that happened to me, I took it personally. Mm-hmm. But the beautiful thing is, through the practices of the Dharma and of mindfulness, I realized that this wasn't personal, it just was. It's really funny. I was reading a book by Swami Vivekananda, who is, you know, one of the first people who brought mm-hmm. yoga and meditation to the West, and he wrote this book called Karma Yoga. And he had visited Chicago in the 1890s to speak at the first kind of international religious conference. I don't remember the exact name for it. And he wrote anecdotes in the book itself of how, when he was just walking around the city of Chicago, strangers would punch him in the face. Oh, my God. Because he was a turban man. And he literally, if this is in the book, Karma Yoga, anybody can, I mean, I had to purchase the book for my yoga teacher training, so I read it. And that was (laughs) his experience with racism in America, because the height of xenophobia was so great at the time. But he doesn't talk about racism from a political sense. He talks about, he just didn't understand the hatred Mm -hmm. in the eyes of this person who didn't even know him, but needed to be violent towards him to somehow make himself feel better. And I think once I read that, I began to see the bigger picture of what's happening around these ideas of bias in our society and how they really play out in the human heart.
2: Wow, that's beautiful. I mean, one of the things you just said, um, and I'd like to respond to a few of them, but mm-hmm. it reminded me of um, when you said, "you know, people would be violent to make themselves feel better." I can remember when I co-wrote this book with uh, Bob Thurman called "Love Your Enemies," mm-hmm. and um, that wasn't always the title of the book, but it ended up being the publisher's choice for the title, and and people would often object, you know, like, why should I love my boss? They're an idiot, you know, <laughs> or why right. should I love this person? They're, they're oppressive or they're abusive. And, and Bob would say, well, of course you want to love them. That means you want them to be happy because if they were only happy, they'd be so much less of a
1: jerk. Exactly. And You know, like we're basically today I was watching um, the memorial for John Lewis.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And basically that is what he stood for. The entirety of his career, the entirety of his existence, he was able to have love for every single one of those officers that were beating him down. For all of the politicians that opposed everything he stood for on equality and justice. Mm -hmm. But that didn't mean he agreed with them. That didn't mean he didn't oppose them or speak out loud against them. Of course he did. He He was kind of an activist and a protester yet he could still see their humanity. He could see the, you know, the, what do we call them? The three poisons, you know, that were clouding Mm -hmm. over the the true self that they are beneath the greed, the hatred, the ignorance. Um, And I think that's what our practices are really calling us to do and be at this time.
2: I was watching a little bit of it, too, and we'll watch more later. Um, uh, but, uh, which is the miracle of our time. I was thinking about that. This is totally off topic. But <laughs> thinking about how we used to have a concept of missing things that were on TV. Or, right. you know, if you weren't tuned into that channel at that time, it was gone. Forever. Right. Now it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, I'll watch it later online. <laughs> um, <Right.
4: laughs>
2: but anyway, uh, I can't remember if it was President Clinton or... Somebody was speaking, and they were describing what was maybe it was Barack Obama. They were describing what was in uh, John Lewis's backpack when he went off to march across that bridge. Oh, that, uh, toothbrush and
1: uh, yeah, little
2: things. An orange thing. and apple. Orange and apple. Yeah. A book by about um, the racial history of the United States, and a book by Thomas Merton. Mm. And I thought I never knew that that he, he was he was carrying around a
1: book by Thomas Merton.
4: Of course. Yeah.
1: And it's so, it's so beautiful, right? Because this is kind of how we're all connected, the nature of interdependence, because for him, you know, nonviolent resistance to oppression was a way of being mm-hmm. and he adopted that way of being, being a young person from the American South, you know, from Georgia who's studying in Tennessee Yet these ideas were adopted by our civil rights leaders after being inspired by the idea of Satyagraha in India, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a lot of where a lot of our Buddhist practices come from. And then those same people that were being, that were adopting Satyagraha in India were being influenced by the the Theosophical Society of America. Mm -hmm. We're using those similar ideas. So it's just, you know, the, it's just so beautiful around the nature of interdependence because no one really has ownership over the human heart, you know, Mm -hmm. it just passes from one person to another, but it's really about us feeling empowered enough to follow that calling, that calling of remaining in our heart, remaining on the side of love and, you know, love, as a warden, I'm actually curious what you think about this, because it gets a really bad rap. Yeah, it does. Um, it's like an <laughs> anemic thing. It's like very soft, like you're a doormat. But I feel like to be able to love your enemies, to be able to humanize them, it's probably the most courageous thing and the, the boldest thing one can do.
2: Oh, I certainly agree. And I think it's a, it's a power. It's a superpower because I think it's aligned with how things actually are interdependent, interconnected. We can't kind of just like vanquish people and, and imagine their lives have nothing to do with ours because it's not true. And it'd be easier if it was maybe as long as we won, but you know, uh, it's just not true. And, and the closer we get to the truth, um, it's just, that's what empowers love is, is that it's true. It's like listening to the people in that church, listening to the example of, John Lewis's life and uh would we be all watching his funeral if he was full of hatred? Or I remember when um uh I had the opportunity some years ago to I spent the day with Miles Horton, who was the founder of the Highlander, then known as the Highlander Folk School, um, you know, which was an integrated school, a lot of civil rights. Workers went there uh, for training, environmental rights workers. A little later on, it was in Tennessee, and it was integrated. So that was like a big scandal and and a big problem. And uh, somehow I I ended up spending a day with Miles Horton and – we you know we talked about a variety of things i talked about meditation which he wasn't that interested in frankly you know <laughs> i asked him like what do you do when you need a break when you need just to like, get some perspective he said i look at the mountains but then we started talking about loving kindness meditation and he said oh marty meeting martin luther king jr he said, marty used to say to me you got to love everybody and i used to laugh and say, no, I don't. I just have to love the people who deserve to be loved. And Marty would laugh and laugh and say, nope, got to love everybody. And the few times I've actually told that story is often a response of, yeah, well, look what happened, you know, as though there were cause and effect, like he loved everybody, therefore he got assassinated. And that if he'd been hateful and bitter and uh, vengeful, he would have been safe. You know, And, and it's such a funny um, equation in our minds that the love is going to bring us down. But you think about legacy, which I, you know, I'm older now, so one can think about that. Uh, and what are we remembered for? I look at the legacy, like the kind of lineage you just talked about, which was really like Gandhi to Dr. Howard Thurman to Martin Luther King Jr., you know, and to us, to whomever is is feeling aligned with that mantle. So,
1: Yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, I think, This reminds me of two stories, you know, the first one, because, you know, I was working predominantly internationally and I wanted to work internationally and I never thought I would become um, an expert on racial equity and breaking racial bias of all things. Um, I'm very much a nerd who likes to sit in a corner and like just read and study and play. Um, But it was a necessity and I remember that this was 2009. I was working in New Orleans for summer as a uh, as a summer associate um, in law school, and I was basically sitting in a sentencing hearing, where this was, I guess, four or four or five years after Hurricane Katrina. So already there have been so many egregious crimes or that have been committed against communities living there. But I saw this judge sentence, you know teenagers, I would say, between the ages of 13 and 16, um, to two, three, four years at a time, were incredibly petty offenses. Things like breaking cell phones and trespassing property, And of course, all of these teenagers were Black and impoverished. And for me, of course, as egregious as it was, and actually, I was sighing so hard that the officer of the peace of the court had to come and ask me to leave. Mm. So I was disrupting the peace of the court. And I think I felt this sense of moral disgust in my belly. And the disgust wasn't just about how egregious this was happening and how these young people's lives were just disposable. But I couldn't understand the cruelty. I had never seen that type of cruelty that this judge and this prosecutor and all these operatives in the court were just so conditioned to having I was like where is the love? Where is the compassion? Where is the mercy? You know, Brian Stevenson talks about mercy, mm-hmm. this idea, and that's where I really kind of started this quest. And for me, this quest really kind of came to a head, actually, with you Sharon, because I went on a retreat with you. It was a, I think it was a seven day meta retreat, loving kindness retreat, and then it was it was like a tap on of like three days of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's try this yeah. out <laughs> so like I was like okay I'm gonna do all of that and I think um, we had started some forgiveness practices in during the loving kindness retreat portion of it too already and I remember that you know we were trying you know we went forgiveness from forgiving the self to you know loved ones and kind of expanding the circle to then moving towards people that have really harmed us mm-hmm. um, And then also thinking about how we may have harmed them. So for me, as someone who was really thinking about the harm of racial trauma and racial bias that was perpetrated against me and other communities that I care about, I started seeing those same seeds of hatred in myself. Mm. So I remembered every time in my life I had used a racial expletive to intentionally cause harm to another being and particularly using the word white, you know, white person, you know, or something like that. And it wasn't that many times, but I remembered that I'd done it to exactly three people. And once I was able to forgive myself for having that, I was free. I actually wrote them an email. Mm. It took me several months to do that, to have, garner the courage to do that. And I apologized. And for me, that wasn't, I didn't expect a response. It was not about that. It was like, I was freeing myself from those seeds of hatred that were deeply planted in my heart, which were actually a product of Mm self-hatred. So I think for me, like that's where the healing really began. And And I really believe that that's not something that only I'm, I'm not a special person. Um, I think this is all of our, you know, birthrights. And this is what Dr. King was talking about when he's talking about radical love. When he's talking about loving everybody, because he's he was able to see that beyond the pain that they cause others, there's pain beneath that pain, you know? hmm
2: I think we do learn that from looking at ourselves. You know, I certainly have. And, and sometimes, uh, um, you know, we look at somebody who's causing harm and they don't seem to be suffering a lot. They seem to be just fine yeah. and pretty self-satisfied. But it really takes some reflection, I think, to understand. That actually can't be. You know, they may be very disconnected from their pain, but it's there. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and that disconnection is so profound. So for the last several months, actually not months, several years, I've been working around that pain that's in my body, particularly around um, misogyny, around Mm -hmm. gender bias and masculinity overall. And I think as someone who comes from like a very thinking background, I can intellectualize a lot of things, but I've been working with a teacher and for I would say six months, whenever I would like go into my thinking mind, she'd be like, stop, feel it, feel it, feel it. And Sharon, like, I was just numb.
3: Mm.
1: Like I couldn't feel anything. And she shared with me that this is something that like 99% of men have trouble feeling. Mm. And I think this is part of, again, how we raise boys and men in our society. We are just numb to feelings, so we just become reactive versus responsive. So I think it, for me, then it becomes not only a, you know, responsibility to begin to heal that form of, you know, toxicity that's kind of stuck in my body, but then a moral obligation to bring it to other people because so much harm is being caused because so many people are unable to feel. And just let's like talk
2: it's a different. little bit about that training that you do. Be more with Anu. So, is that centered around being able to feel?
1: Yeah, so it depends on which training, right? So, uh-huh. um, so one thing about me is that I am a very like linear thinker, but I like to break things up.
3: <laughs> so
1: at Be More, what we've done is that we've created a journey. So it's called the Be More Journey. And we've broken up that journey into three stages, learn, develop, propel. And the whole idea is we want to teach people, have them learn what they haven't learned about the nature of bias, racial bias, gender bias, other forms of biases. So that's more of a left-brain exercise. But, you know, we can learn things. Like a lot of us know the reality of racial disparities in our world but we don't have the skills to address them, right? So that's where we need to develop the skills. So that's the second stage. And for me, it's really about building a movement, a beloved community. And the more people practice these tools together, we can propel performance. So we've broken that down into 10 skill sets and competencies that we train people in. So it's things like awareness, comprehension, optimism, curiosity, empathy, and compassion, well-being collective identity and a few others and then we have courses that basically train people in these skills so we have two short courses that anyone can take for 60 minutes um, really around breaking bias and it's breaking unconscious bias more specifically and that's available to anybody this is what we've done in the last couple of months in light of the protests you know we as a team basically took a step back and wanted to bring our work to as many people as possible. So we've made it quite affordable with the sliding scale thing. And then now I'm doing a four week course um, for the first time called Breaking Racial Bias. I used to do this course in one day. We have added a lot more content and we basically move from understanding the nature of systemic racism to how racial bias is formed in our minds And then the different types of racial biases, you know, internalized, interpersonal, institutional, and then how to break it down. And the way we break it down is, you know, for me, through meditation and mindfulness-based practices. So we've created a framework of five tools called PRISM that are all rooted in meditation to help people become more aware of what's happening in their minds when they're interacting with people that are different from them. And then actively rewire their brains, you know, through tools like stereotype replacement and individuation and then cultivating more hard practices like compassion and empathy and joy and perspective taking. So that's kind of what we do. Um, so the four week course is something that requires daily practice of a meditation tool, as well as homework, reflection exercises, journaling and you know, really showing up for both the lecture components and the community components of it.
2: So this is all happening online now,
1: right? This is happening online um, through Zoom. So we have like a learning session once a week for four weeks and then a community discussion once a week. Mm-hmm. And it's actually a really beautiful group of people. We have um, over 30 people in the group. who are doctors and lawyers and teachers and therapists. Um, so it's very diverse from non-profit executives. And the beautiful thing about this is that, you know, and this is why I'm really committed to this work um, that is rooted in compassion. So, you know, everything we do is science-backed, but it's also backed by compassion. Because if we don't have compassion, there's still shame and fear in the group. And when we have fear, nothing good is going to come out of it. We're not going to be able to change behavior. So when you, when I think about civil rights movement leaders, when I think about um, all the people that opposed um, colonization, particularly you know in South Asia, where my family is from, they were fearless. They had they had opened their hearts or had become embodied in their hearts in a way, but they weren't afraid of anything. They weren't even afraid to die. Mm. And that is the beauty of this work. And that's, and I think what I see oftentimes in our movements right now, is a lot of calling out and a lot of perpetuation of fear, you know, towards one another. And I don't think it's a right or a wrong or a good or a bad. It just is, you know, I don't want to judge it for what it is because the causes and conditions that are causing that too. But if there's a more skillful way of really calling more people in, and to create collective healing,
3: mm-hmm.
1: why not do that?
3: <laughs> well, it's
2: interesting because I think it's it's hard to sometimes remember what it is you really want. Like we've had these discussions at IMS about, um, should everybody uh, who teaches here have to? go to an anti-bias training of some kind. And and that may be an evolution, but the point is what we want is a certain kind of behavior. Right. You know, and uh, we have to keep an eye on that aspiration, you know, because that's the important thing. And maybe people will come to that more openness and more, more understanding uh, through a specific anti-bias training. Maybe they will come to it another way. But that's what we really need is is that spirit of inclusivity and and recognizing everybody belongs here, you know, and it's it's not exclusive in any way. But it, I see it; it becomes kind of easy to focus on the method, you know, or the thing. Sure. And I want to I, I want to ask you also, like, what do you think is the um, like how do you start those trainings? Like what's the central conversation to begin with? Because I've been reflecting a lot. Like I have um, a goddaughter who, she's an adult, but uh, (laughs) when when she was very young, uh, uh, she was in a movie Mm -hmm. and um, she was born in China, adopted by her white parents and uh, grew up here in, in New York. And, uh, And I don't know how old she was, even in the movie, maybe five. Mm -hmm. She didn't have any lines. She barked at one point because there was a talent show. Um, But she was on camera a lot, and she was the only Asian-appearing child. And the movie had like – it was sort of like about a family reunion. There were lots and lots of kids and siblings' kids, and and she was the only Asian child. And one of her mother's conditions – for allowing her to be in the movie was that it never be mentioned that she was adopted. She said, I want people to look at this family, you know, mom, dad, which is already a a construct, mom, dad, you know, older siblings and her and just think that's what families look like sometimes. Right. You know, it doesn't need to be explained, doesn't need to be mentioned. And it also reminded me of um, the first and one of the only times I watched Grey's Anatomy on TV uh, by Shonda Rhimes, and I was so struck like the head of the hospital, the head of neurosurgery was black and it was never talked about. It's just like this is what a staff can look like sometimes. Right. You know, maybe this is even what it should look like. Um and but lately I've been thinking, well, maybe that was skipping over a really important conversation, you know. Right. Like what did he face in becoming the head of the hospital?
1: Exactly. Yes, I think it's so beautiful that you were asking this because I'm curious about this myself. I don't really have an answer, but so I think about it's both and, right? So I think for me, very much like what you shared, you know, my aspiration with my work and everything I do is really around creating a world where we can belong everywhere, you know, so... That's my aspiration. And what keeps us from feeling that sense of belonging? You know, and this is where um, we have to become more intimately acquainted with how our mind sometimes makes people feel uttered. And it may not be intentional, um, yet it can cause harm. So that's one thing. But on the other hand, What skills do we need that even if we feel othered, what can we do to stand up for ourselves? So I think it's the both and now where, you know, like you said, there are lots and lots of hospital systems where, you know, the head of the departments are, you know, Black women or, you know, Latino men or whatever it may be, yet the stimuli that we receive from our social conditioning oftentimes doesn't look like that reality. And then we're not privy to the stories of those individuals. We're not privy to the pain and suffering that they're carrying, but beyond the pain and suffering the loneliness. Mm -hmm. So like one of the things I wanted to share with you, I think it was something around, um, what we shared earlier. And I remember, you know, as an undergrad, as a grad student, as a law student even, wanting to share how I've been made to feel smaller than, or maybe not made to feel, because I'm giving away my power when I say that, but how, how, how I have felt lonely. And, you know, if someone called me XYZ or someone asked me again where I'm really from, and wouldn't believe, wouldn't take Brooklyn for an answer, or whatever it is, made me feel other. And my emotions would not be validated by my own classmates and friends. Like, I would be told that I'm overreacting, and I'm being too emotional. And that is cognitive dissonance. But that can create a lot of challenges, particularly for people from a non-dominant group. Like, this is what? You know, I am beginning to unpack it myself when it comes to gender identity. You know, like women and female identified people oftentimes have to go through that where they're constantly questioning themselves. All they did was really express how they feel that others aren't believing that. This happens around race and ethnicity and immigration. So I think for me, the aspiration is really that compassion-based container where we acknowledge that we're going to make mistakes, but we also acknowledge that when we make mistakes, you know, we will be, you know, kindly told what those mistakes are Mm -hmm. we could grow together. You know, and we can take care of one another. We can be each other's, you know, brothers and sisters keepers (laughs) in line with what, um, you know, John Lewis was about, you know, mm-hmm. the Legacy was about.
2: It's really beautiful. May it be so.
1: May it be so.
2: <laughs> and I wonder, um, I would love to keep talking to you, but I, I know we need to stop. So I wonder if you could actually lead a, a meditation practice for a little bit.
4: Yeah, that'd be great. So wherever you are, just come to a comfortable seated position, with a chair. Placing both your feet to the ground you, so really feeling rooted to the earth, to the floor, resting your hands on the lap or the knees. And then you can either bring your eyes to a close or place your gaze at a stationary point in front of you. I mean, for a few moments, just returning to your breath. Really observing this breath entering the body, this breath leaving the body. If there's some turbulence in the mind, notice what's happening. Perhaps there's thinking or planning your daydreaming. And see if you can become aware of that. Thinking, thinking. Planning, planning. And see if you can bring your awareness back to your breath. This breath that's with us all the time, since the very moment we were born. So really savoring this breath. Feeling as if with every in breath, we're being healed. And we're the outbreath. We're just letting go of anything that is doesn't serve us. To be enjoying that process, to be one with the present moment, with this gift of life that comes through this breath. If the mind won't That's okay. Notice what it's doing. And see if you can just bring your awareness back to that room. What a gift it is that we can be. In a time of the pandemic with violence against so many bodies of color. Reholding that aspiration, that that breath that we have, is also there to on all those problems and those forms of life. May this breath really strengthen that resolve to respond skillfully with determination and compassion. Just taking a few more moments to enjoy this breath, saving this breath. Even expressing gratitude for this breath, for enable neighborhood. your own version of life experiences. Thank you, everyone.
2: Thank you so much. It was really beautiful speaking with you and sitting with you.
1: (laughs) Uh,
2: We have to have lunch when we're both in New York next time.
1: Yes, I would love that. May that be so, too. May that be so. Very soon, I hope. I hope so, too.
2: And to learn more about Anu's work, you can visit www.bemorewithanu.com. That's B-E-M-O-R-E-W-I-T-H-A-N-U.com. A big thank you to all of you listening. This has been the Real Change Series on the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe. May you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Real Change is available September 1st in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook formats. Learn more at realchangebook.com.